Welcome to Medic's podcast, our MRCS revision series. My name's Manal Ahmed and I'm a vascular trainee. And I'm Matthias Fahavari, a general surgical registrar. If you enjoy listening to our podcast, make sure to subscribe to us here on Spotify. And also follow us on Twitter at Medex Podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast, you can always support our channel on Patreon, the link for which is provided below. And keep in mind that this is used 100% to run the podcast and help us to deliver high quality content for you guys. And remember, you can always send us feedback on Twitter and we would love to hear from you all. Hello everyone and welcome back to our second podcast on pancreatitis. We'll be picking up where we left off in our last podcast. So let's get started. Okay, so let's discuss how we manage pancreatitis, acute pancreatitis. What are the initial steps, Manal? So initially, once you've assessed the patient using your A to E assessment, um, mm-hmm. you want to monitor the fluid input and the output. And so you prescribe them some IV fluids, you put in a catheter. Um, if they seem quite hypovolemic or if there's evidence of shock, you can discuss with the critical care unit to put in a central line as well. Um, it's really important to you know, give quite a lot of fluid and you want to ensure that the overall urine output is above 30 mils per hour. Okay, so what are the advantages of having a central line? So a central line essentially lets you measure the central venous pressure um, mm-hmm. And also it allows replacement of lost electrolytes, um, you know, slightly more aggressively, so to speak. Yeah, so you can give higher concentration of electrolytes in an ITU setting. Then your central venous pressure can guide your fluid replacement regime. Yeah. Sometimes in pancreatitis, patients can get an ileus. Mm-hmm. And if they are vomiting, it's, it's quite good to put in a nasogastric tube as well. Yeah, absolutely. Particularly to avoid aspirations in the elderly patients or patients who are maybe on very strong analgesia. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So just opioids. Yeah, opioids. Yeah, opioids especially. Um, and so that leads us quite well to analgesia. It's really, really important to give effective analgesia in pancreatitis. This is important because if they, if the patient has a lot of abdominal pain, they're mm-hmm. not going to breathe as effectively. And that can lead to consolidation in, in the bases of the lungs or basal atelectasis mm-hmm. as well, mm-hmm. in which case you then have another problem to deal with. So it's better that you go in quite early with effective analgesia. Um, you can give, you know, you can go up the who ladder certainly, but you can also get a PCA going mm-hmm. um, and you can give between five to 10 milligrams. Um, you know, it's, obviously you want to speak to the anesthetic team yeah. because they're the ones who set it up. I think it depends on the trust because some trust I worked for, you mm-hmm. can literally just sign on the back of the drug chart and the PCA is done and the nurses mm. will set it up or contact the appropriate people. Mm-hmm. But definitely think about patient-controlled anesthesia. I think it's important in pancreatitis. Yeah. And what about feeding? Oh, yeah, feeding. So I think classically, this, I think the classical teaching was that patients with pancreatitis should go into pancreatic rest and should be nearby mouth. However, this is not the case anymore. Uh, and I think that's definitely made it through to the MRCS as well. Mm-hmm. Putting patients uh, completely nearby mouth is, uh, is, is actually uh, associated with higher rates of infected pancreatic necrosis, uh, higher rates of multi-organ failure and necrotizing, uh, 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 infected necrotizing pancreatitis as well. 
simply delaying feeding for more than 24 hours is already a bad thing. Now, as I said, this has already made it through to the MRCS, but in case you've asked, I'd like to highlight two studies here that you probably would like to quote should you be asked on an exam about feeding regime. So the first of these by Vaughan, V-A-U-G-H-N at all, and it goes like early versus delayed feeding in patients with acute pancreatitis. This is a systematic review. And the other big uh, study that you want to quote, if, if you asked, is by Theodore W. James and Seth D. Crockett, and it goes management of acute pancreatitis in the first 72 hours. So long story short, these studies suggest that you should not keep patients nearby mouth. Uh, if you were put an NG tube down because of vomiting or ileus, most of the trusts now uses NG tubes that are licensed for feeding. So you can always feed patients through the NG tube. If they're unable to eat or feed or the vomiting is, uh, is, uh, has not resolved, obviously you don't want to feed someone who's an ileus. Uh, through the NG or you, even if you do just with a very low rate, you can then give them total parental nutrition. Uh, if the pancreatitis is not so severe, then you can initially just allow them to take free fluids, uh, because as we mentioned before, they often vomit, and then certainly build it up towards soft diet and so forth. Uh, so just to reiterate um, the titles of the papers, the first one is, quote, Early versus delayed feeding in patients with acute pancreatitis, a systematic review, end quote. And the second one is, open quote, management of acute pancreatitis in the first 72 hours, close quote. Yeah, so these two studies suggest early feeding. How about antibiotics? Well, I think antibiotics is a fairly controversial topic, right? Uh, it's controversial, but it shouldn't actually be, because again, we have got um, uh, uh, quite a good evidence now uh, in terms of when to use antibiotics. So we know that mortality of pancreatic necrosis uh, doubles if an infection is present. So it sort of sounds logical to give antibiotics to prevent uh, the necrosis becoming infected. And they did that in the past. However, in the last 15 years or so, uh, it became clear that there is no difference in risk of infected pancreatic uh, necrosis uh, with or without antibiotics. So basically giving antibiotics, it's not improving your chances not to have an infected necrosis. So in highlight of all that, in patients with mild uh, acute pancreatitis, there is no law for prophylactic antibiotics. If patients with necrotizing pancreatitis, if, you, if it's a sterile necrosis, again, there is no law for antibiotics. Okay. However, if they got an obvious infection in the necrosis, in that case, you are definitely need to give antibiotics, and in these cases, stronger uh, antibiotics are often commonly used, such as meropenem, or imipenem. Yeah. Now again, there's another big change in the um, management of acute pancreatitis. I think the other thing as well we should add in is mm -hmm. the role of adequate 
venous thromboprophylaxis. Oh yeah, sorry. Especially in a um, highly thrombophilic state because of the inflammatory response. It's really important that you do give the patient daltaparin or anoxaparin or you know whatever is used in your trust because you want to ensure that in a highly inflammatory state they don't end up with a PE or a DVT. And you can also prescribe TEDs as well, but these are important given the overall high systemic inflammatory response that's going on. Okay, so the vascular surgeons always comes out, but remember, we do need to give them VT prophylaxis. And indeed, this is very important in, in a hyperinflammative state such as pancreatitis. So what are the complications then? Uh, what are the common complications? Can you can you tell us about that? Uh, yeah, so in terms of complications, the first one and the most common one is um, ARDS or acute respiratory distress syndrome. I'm not sure if that's the most common one, but it's definitely the most severe one. Yeah, it, I mean, it can have, you know, it can significantly increase the overall mortality for the patients. Mm -hmm. And this usually happens as a result of sort of widespread inflammation in the lungs and you know the patients get the shortness of breath mm -hmm. and they become quite tachypneic um, and there are other causes for it as well but overall you know it's due to sort of mass inflammatory response. Yeah so it's bilateral patchy infiltrates as we said before, mm -hmm. failure of oxygenation, you often need to ventilate these patients and prone ventilation seems to be uh, seems to be more adequate for these. Yeah. I think a little bit more common complication than that is something to do with the glucose homeostasis. Yeah, so the patients end up with hyperglycemia, um, mm -hmm. just mass sort of increase in glucose. And that's usually because of the fact that when the pancreas is really inflamed and partly necrosed or destroyed, um, there just isn't enough insulin about to you know, break down the glucose. And so yeah. it's quite important to start the patient on an insulin sliding scale. Okay. Anything else? Uh, yeah, the patients can also get um, changes in their calcium levels, which mm -hmm. we have briefly touched on. Um, so obviously you want to monitor it quite closely and replace as needed. And then finally, depending on the cause, so if a patient comes in with alcohol-based um, pancreatitis, mm -hmm. um, it's really important to address the withdrawal phase of it as well. So, mm -hmm. it, you know, usually whenever a patient comes in and has a significant history of alcohol intake, you always want to start them up on the CWAS score. So you ask the nurses to keep an eye on whether they might be going into the delirium tremens or the DTs. <laughs> um, yeah, and you also want to prescribe them Habronex, um, mm -hmm. which is a vitamin B supplement, but yeah. really important, and chlorodiazepoxide, because that helps with the overall alcohol withdrawal phase as well. Okay. Now, there's also some interventions you may want to do uh, or you may need to do in acute pancreatitis. Yeah, what about uh, ERCP, Matthias? Yeah, so that's probably the first one to mention. Uh, as we said, pancreatitis most commonly secondary to gallstones, about 45%. And these gallstones can, uh, or in fact, if somebody's got gallstone pancreatitis, uh, it by definition means that the gallstones has passed through the common bile duct. Hence, they need a cholecystectomy in order to avoid this happening again. Now the ideal timing of the cholecystectomy, I think the classical teaching is that it needs to be done within the same admission. And this has got uh, quite strong evidence to back it. Uh, they've done randomized controlled trials. Uh, there's a famous one by 
Mark von Baal, which is a systematic review by the Dutch Pancreatitis Study Group. And what they've shown is that cholecystectomy during the initial admission for patients with gallstone pancreatitis leads to a reduction in mortality, gallstone-related complications, readmissions, and other uh, biliary complications as well. Uh, there's also another important finding of this study, is that if you delay your, pancreatite, uh, your cholecystectomy for pancreatitis, there is about an 18 to 20% chance for readmission for recurrent biliary disease or biliary event and about a 10% uh, pancreatitis uh, 40 days after uh, the initial episode of pancreatitis. So you really want to do this uh, operation as soon as possible. And in an exam, the gold standard answer is within the same admission. And then the last thing that we also want to consider is, you know, this is great for gallstone pancreatitis. Um, in patients who come in with alcohol pancreatitis, um, and a lot of these times, you know, we do see that these are frequent attenders, they come in with acute and chronic episodes of pancreatitis. So it's really important to get the alcohol liaison services involved quite early on. And we have seen that overall, you know, when the adequate support is there, it does reduce the total number of hospital admissions down the line and can reduce the risk of acute pancreatitis and uh, recurrent admissions as well. Yeah. So, chronic pancreatitis then. There are a number of causes for chronic pancreatitis and I like to remember it using the mnemonic GAITS, G-A-I-T-S. Okay. So the first one is genetics. Yeah, that's um, it's actually more common than, than most of us would think. There are three very important genetic, uh, uh, genetically inherited conditions of gene uh, deficiency that can lead to chronic pancreatitis. Number one is the PRSS1. So I repeat this, PRSS1 deficiency. Mutations in the PRSS1 gene causes something we call hereditary pancreatitis. This is an autosomal dominant inherited pattern disease and it carries a 40% lifetime risk of developing pancreatic cancer. Another important uh, hereditary condition is the SPINK1 mutation. Now these patients, as there is a risk, a significant lifetime risk of developing pancreatic cancer, will require a total pancreatectomy. Other conditions, genetically inherited conditions, include cystic fibrosis, where secretions are blocking the pancreatic duct and leading to chronic pancreatitis. Uh, and again, this is a condition where total pancreatectomy is, uh, can be considered and advised in some cases. Now, I think other and probably the most common cause when we go to GATES, uh, letter A stands for alcohol. Is that right? That's correct. And that makes up about 70% of all chronic pancreatitis admissions. Um, then we have I, which is for immune or autoimmune. Mm -hmm. T for triglycerides, which are nearly almost always high in patients who come in with chron chronic pancreatitis. 
Um, and then finally, S, which is structural. So this refers to obstruction as a result of a tumor, which could be compressing from the outside onto the ducts, mm-hmm. uh, which obstructs the flow of, of bile and enzymes. And the second one is pancreas uh, divisum, which is where which is where two of the pancreatic ducts come together to fuse and form one pancreatic duct. Yeah, that's correct. So the essence of chronic pancreatitis is, is or the, the, the most important pathophysiological mechanism is basically duct blockage. As you can see, it's in cystic fibrosis due to the secretions. In alcoholics, due to the uh, chronic inflammation and calcifications, which then block into ducts. Uh, and equally in pancreas, divism or structural problems, again, you you get blocked or chronically blocked ducts, which can then lead to a lot of pain. So what exactly the presentation of chronic pancreatitis? How do these patients coming into your clinic? Um, so they present quite similarly to acute pancreatitis, mm-hmm. which is the epigastric pain, which sort of bores through right through to the back yeah. um, and is relieved by sitting back or, you know, sometimes they place a hot water bottle and that can be seen when you examine the abdomen. Yeah, I've seen that quite often actually, hot water bottle, I'm not quite sure why. Yeah, so there's this thing called erythema abigni, which literally refers to when, you know, the fact that they're putting the hot water bottle on their skin. Mm-hmm. And so they end up with this sort of reticular red pattern on the surface where the hot water would have pushed oh, okay. the skin. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. So what makes it worse? Um, so it's usually exacerbated by fatty food or in the case of alcoholic pancreatitis yeah, by yeah. alcohol. I think that's very common that people keep drinking despite they're having chronic pancreatitis. Exactly. It's one of the one of the criteria to, to get surgical relief mm-hmm. is to be abstinent for a long period of time. Yeah. So what are the symptoms are these patients experiencing? So oftentimes when you're taking a history from these patients, they complain of bowel movements or stools, which sort of have this greasy thing and it sort of floats on the water. Steatoria. Steatoria, absolutely. And that's due to the high fat content because Mm -hmm. the pancreas is no longer releasing those enzymes to break down the fat. Okay. And so it relieves or it basically ends up undigested into the fecal matter. So what can you do about this? Um, so you can always give them replacement um, stuff for this. You can always give them um, supplements. Yeah. It. So uh, pancre- yeah, if they go into pancreatic insufficiency, yeah, you prescribe them Creon. Yes. So basically containing these enzymes, and the way it works, they take the Creon and you ask the GP to do something we call a fecal elastase test, which indicates how much undigested food is left in the feces. And basically, the GP can titrate Creon up until the fecal elastase goes back to a normal level. Mm-hmm. What about the endocrine function of the pancreas? Does that get does that impairs in chronic pancreatitis? Yeah. So with pancreatitis, especially chronic pancreatitis, a lot of the endocrine and exocrine functions are pretty much mm-hmm. destroyed, and so you know they're no longer producing um, insulin as effectively as they would have been, which mm-hmm. leads to a lot of blood glucose in the in, in the body, mm-hmm. which often presents with symptoms of diabetes, mellitus type 2, so that's like, you know, that, that thirst, um, polyuria, polydipsia. Okay, so you manage the diabetes as well. Yes. Now let me talk a little bit about the surgical management uh, of chronic pancreatitis. 
So first of all, the indications for surgery in this instance is usually the chronic pain. As I mentioned, patients must stop drinking, so if the etiology of your pancreatitis is alcohol, then you have to ask them to stop drinking and you have to monitor that. Uh, initially or usually you try to avoid straight jumping into an operation and you would like to manage these people with endoscopic stenting, if it is possible. However, as I said, uh, they often have got dilated duct. And if the main pancreatic duct is dilated due to calcifications or blockages, then what you can do surgically is ensure a better drainage. It's called longitudinal pancreatical jejunostomy, or LPJ. You literally stitch a loop of jejunum, you open up the duct and you stitch a bar onto the top of it, so you encourage the drainage or you ensure the drainage of pancreatic uh, secretions straight into the bowel. Other operations, if it affects parts of the pancreas, you can do a distal pancreatectomy if it's the distal part or the tail of the pancreas or the body, and you can do a Whipple's procedure if it's mostly in the head. We will discuss these uh, operations in more detail on our Patreon account. Okay, I think this was a big long topic, acute and chronic pancreatitis. So let's summarize what are the complications of these conditions. Yeah, so pancreatitis, the way I like to divide up the complications are very early complications, mm -hmm. um, sort of early to middle complications, and then the late stage complications. So the early ones we sort of spoke about earlier on, you know, when you when you can get the, um, the ARDS, you can get the hyperglycemia, um, low calcium or hypocalcemia, and the symptoms that come with it. Then, depending on how severe it is, you can also end up with multi-organ failure. Mm. Um, and then when we look at the pancreas itself as an organ, obviously a lot can go wrong in that inflammatory state. So you can end up with um, pseudocysts, yeah. which may require drainage further down the line, which we have discussed. Um, you can get pancreatic abscesses and or further down the line necrosis as mm -hmm. well. Um, and I, I don't think we need to go into too much detail about the necrosis part because we have sort of discussed on it. Yeah, I think we, we're yeah. setting up for an MRCS level. Absolutely. The key message for that is that open operation is not the preferred way of approaching these infected necrosis. And necrosectomy, very, very, very rarely done. Mm -hmm. And I think if you remember that, that's probably enough for your MRCS. Yeah. Um, the other things as well, then when we go into sort of, you know, sort of that middle stage um, would be sort of necrosis in around that area. So that can affect the bowel um, or any of the vessels. So that can cause a splenic vein thrombosis or like mm -hmm. a portal vein thrombus as well. Um, pancreatic hemorrhage, that that's sort of, you know, indicative of how severe the pancreatitis is. Um, and, and worst possible scenario in sort of early or long term might be death. Yeah. Um, and then sort of, you know, once this is resolved or if it's a more chronic state, you get these late complications, which mm -hmm. are more than likely related to the fact that the endocrine and the exocrine function um, are no longer as effective as they would have been prior well, yeah. to all of the pancreatitis. So you see, you know, diabetes, um, you can see malabsorption, um, yeah. chronic pancreatitis. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, it all depends on how severe it is. Yeah, so what degree of pancreas died and what's the patient's age and general parameters, absorption, uh, 
and then developing chronic pancreatitis. I think this was a podcast. That was a hefty topic. That was a very heavy topic. Both of us yeah. are very tired. Yeah. You can properly <laughs> hear it in our voice. Yes. <laughs> okay, so... So, folks, um, we really do hope you've learned something today. Um, and obviously, there is a lot more additional content on our Patreon account, which you can check out, including um, like procedures. and Yeah, I will take you through a Whippers procedure, a distal pancreatectomy, and I can also talk about LPJ. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, ch check that out in the meantime. And until then, keep, keep pushing! pushing!